The Bible tells us to everything there is a season, a time to build, a time to reap, and a time to sow, and a time to heal. This is the time to heal in America. Because now is when the real work begins, the hard work, the necessary work, the good work, the essential work to save lives and beat this epidemic, to rebuild our economy so it works for working people, to root out systemic racism in our justice system and society, to combat the climate crisis, to unite our country and heal the soul of our nation. Welcome to our podcast about biotechnology breakthroughs, the DNA of all living things, and the DNA of scientists, companies, and patients who make miracles happen. I'm Phyllis Arthur, Vice President of Infectious Disease Policy at Bio. I'm filling in for Dr. Michelle this week, and you're listening to I Am Bio. Welcome to our election recap episode of the I Am Bio podcast. Well, it's Friday at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and by all indication, the networks are saying we're on the cusp of calling Pennsylvania and declaring Joe Biden the president-elect of the United States. If he holds on in all of the states where he's leading, Biden will actually beat Donald Trump by the same electoral college margin that Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton back in 2016. It's been a week of erratic sleep and frayed nerves and extra cocktails for all of us. Americans voted in record numbers despite the pandemic. Republicans actually had a better showing than anyone anticipated in congressional and down-ballot races. They held their ground everywhere except at the top of the ticket. Donald Trump did, in fact, energize new GOP-based voters. But in doing so, he lost too many people in the middle. Ticket splitters delivered Democratic setbacks in state, legislative, House, and even Senate races, where senators like Susan Collins of Maine and Lindsey Graham of South Carolina cruised to re-election. Mitch McConnell will remain the majority leader unless Democrats win two special elections in Georgia on January 5th. Joe Biden, having captured more votes than any candidate in history, is preparing to be inaugurated as the 46th president of the United States. And his transition team has a lot of work ahead of it. Today, I'm very happy to be joined by two of my colleagues and longtime advocates for our industry in the corridors of power. Gene Haggerty is BIO's Executive Vice President for Advocacy. And Patrick Plews is the Vice President of State Government Affairs. I don't know about you all, but for me, this week has been a week of overindulgence in chocolate. Patrick and Jean, how have you been spending this week? What have been your vices? How have you been getting through it? Well, this week has been uh, both exciting. There have been some surprises. It's also been a very anxious week, especially me uh, as a Pennsylvanian, watching my state be the center of the uh, of, of the presidential election. It's been exciting, but also very nerve wracking. And uh, unfortunately, I think I've also taken to drinking more than I normally have during the week because of this election. <laughs> You're checking your wine stores to see how good or bad it is there. And they are depleting rapidly. <laughs> Gene? Well, first of all, Patrick says that like he normally doesn't drink during the week. <laughs> <laughs> I I think a lot of the same. You know, I actually came up with 
a few of my girlfriends and we rented a house in New Hampshire for the week just to uh, kind of get out of the pressure of, of Washington, D.C., watching these stores and businesses being boarded up uh, in case of riots, which is which is a whole new reality, I think, for this country to see these types of riots and protests around a national election. Um, it was also about two hours from Canada in case we needed to make a quick escape. Um, <laughs> if they would let you in. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. But, you know, it's, it's funny, I think, that we, um, I, I watched the election results coming in with a group of women who uh, have very different political views. And we had some, a few tense moments. But uh, overall, you know, I think we were proud that we managed to maintain a level of, of bipartisan uh, camaraderie through a very difficult election. And over the next few days, quite frankly, which were, which continue to be tense, um, it, it was exciting. You know, for me, the most exciting part of this election was to see how many people showed up to the polls, because I think that is truly inspiring. And I think it sets a good tone for the next generation and for the future of this country. Yeah. How many young, new young voters are out there engaging? They have their hot issues. They care about climate change and the environment or the economy. And I think helping people understand that they can choose their top issue and vote for that and that it actually matters, particularly when you have slim margins like these. When a couple of hundred or a couple thousand votes makes a difference, hopefully people feel empowered from that and realize why they have to show up. And Jean, I liked your comment about, you know, you were, you're, you're spending uh, election week with friends who have different political views, but at the end of the day, you all sort of stick together and you remain friends. I am still committed to the idea that we've become such a polarized country politically, and I am committed uh, and I work hard at it uh, to not ruin a family relationship or a friendship over politics, that at the end of the day, we're all Americans. We may have different views of how the country should be run or led, but at the end of the day, it's our country and we need to to still be friends and, and stay together on this. What do you think was the biggest surprise of this election? Going into Tuesday, everyone thought that the there really was going to be a very significant blue wave across the United States. The polling was showing seven to ten points uh, point spread for Biden in a number of states. The Senate was expected to uh, change hands into Democrat control, and uh, that likely is not the outcome, though it is still possible. Um, it is becoming increasingly likely that both Georgia seats will go into runoff um, as Georgia has a, a their law says that unless you get more than 50 percent of the votes that uh, there must be a runoff. So we're looking at a very narrowly divided Senate if it stays in Republican control or even if it flips into Democrat control. But I definitely think that one thing is interesting is voters did turn out in droves for both parties. Typically, you have voter enthusiasm favor one party over another, and it really shows how deeply divided yet deeply engaged Americans are in 2020. Patrick, what were the most surprising things for you that we saw across the 50 states in the state elections? 
I think a lot of people naturally are focused on the presidential election and not paying attention to the states. And the state elections are very important because, as you know, we just completed a census and the census then dictates redistricting. And whoever controls the levers of state government in a given state control redistricting for the next 10 years, uh, and which has a tremendous impact on on Congress. So I think for me, um, and you said it earlier, Republicans really held their own. We were going into this election thinking that we were going to have significant turnover in state legislatures, flipping from Republican to Democrat, especially in some states that have traditionally been Republican strongholds like Texas and Pennsylvania. Uh, but what we learned was that Republicans retain control of those of those chambers. Um, we were really looking at Minnesota, the Minnesota Senate, to flip from Republican to Democrat, which would have given Minnesota what we call a trifecta, meaning that the governor, the House, and the Senate would be Democrat. But that never came to fruition. The Republicans maintain a very uh, slight edge in Minnesota. And that was probably one of the easier pickups for Democrats. And they didn't pull through with that. The other states we were looking at were Texas. There was a lot of chatter about the Texas House flipping from Republican to Democrat, given the changing demographics in Texas. That didn't happen. And well, and as well in Pennsylvania, there was a thought that the Pennsylvania House would flip from Republican to Democrat. And that didn't happen. As a matter of fact, Republicans actually picked up chambers. They picked up both the New Hampshire House and the New Hampshire Senate, thereby giving New Hampshire, um, which is a very important uh, uh, primary state, uh, a trifecta as well. So going into 2021, we'll have um, roughly 27 Republican governors and 23 Democrat governors. One of the things that intrigued me as I started to watch the election coverage was some were some polls that I saw that showed what were people's top issues going into the election. And I saw a poll that was 40 percent of people. It was the economy followed by uh, coronavirus, followed by racial in, uh, inequity. Um, so an interesting stacking of the issues. How do you think that COVID and the and the uh, pandemic impacted the election outcome prior to COVID, the economy was doing fairly well, and Trump was actually uh, getting good numbers on the economy. The American public were uh, generally supportive of how he was handling economic issues. And then also, uh, with regard to racial tensions, a lot of this did not bubble up until the pandemic hit. It had been sort of under the surface. But the pandemic has really brought to the forefront what we've all known for a long time, and that is there are serious racial inequities happening in this country. Um, the minorities are being hit much harder by COVID. They're being hit much harder by the economic uh, repercussions of COVID. And so all of these things are really conflated. And I think what uh, was top of mind with every voter going into this election um, was how this administration and President Trump has handled the response to the COVID pandemic. I think that that um, bringing to the surface all of the other issues, um, as well as, quite frankly, the Supreme Court uh, nomination with the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, really energized the Democrat base and brought people to the polls and uh, made sure that they did either early voting, mail-in voting, or showed up on Tuesday. And Patrick, how do you think that COVID pandemic affected what happened at the state level, if at all? I think the COVID pandemic affected it greatly. I mean, you had a lot of Democrat candidates running on a health and safety message and a lot of Republicans running on an economic message. 
so I think, you know, they were propelled into winning their races based on those messages. What we're finding and seeing is that moderates have lost um, some significant members that we worked with that we would consider moderates, like the Speaker of the House in Rhode Island lost his election. And we're seeing more strident Republicans and more strident Democrats winning their seats uh, in this past election. I think the message of defunding the police coupled with the civil unrest that we've been seeing uh, helped some Republicans uh, stay in office, quite frankly, and probably hurt uh, some Democrats running for office in some regions of the country. So let's assume that we're going to see a President Biden in January, and he will be leading a divided government where potentially we have a Republican-controlled Senate with a narrow margin and a narrower margin for the Democrats on the House side. What does that mean, in you guys' opinion, on what will happen for, say, the pandemic response going forward into next year, and also what's going to happen for our industry as a whole? You know, interestingly, the House did pick up Um, a number of Republican seats. I I think at the end of the day, they're expected to pick up a total of anywhere between seven and 12 seats once everything has been finalized. A number of these seats were traditional Republican seats that had been lost to Democrats over the years. For the House, that means that Speaker Pelosi will have to maintain control over her entire caucus and have fewer Democrats that can peel off of any vote. Now she's very much going to have to keep her caucus in line. And when you have moderates fighting to protect their seats and the progressive left moving their message and agenda forward, it's going to be challenging for her to keep all of that together. Republicans in the minority, it's easier for them to push back on legislation. It's always much harder when you're in the majority party um, and you have to legislate. In the Senate, we're also going to see a challenge because even if Republicans maintain control and get both of the Georgia potential runoff seats, they have a majority of 52. And they still have two very moderate Republicans in Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins. So Majority Leader McConnell on the Senate side is going to have to keep his caucus together. Then you have the Biden administration. When they thought prior to Tuesday that they would come in and have a Democratic-controlled House, a Democratic-controlled Senate, and the administration, they had a very aggressive policy agenda. That included climate change, COVID, shoring up the Affordable Care Act, um, and potentially even moving to health care for all, Medicare for all, although Biden has been himself walking back from that a bit. If the Senate does retain Republican control, a lot of those policies are going to be dropped um, and, and he will he can pursue some some of the priorities through his administrative agenda, through rulemaking, through executive orders. Or they're going to have to be very much scaled back and passed in a bipartisan manner. 
President Trump has used the executive order quite a bit during his presidency, um, and he's done several in the last four or five months that really impact the healthcare sector. Controversial policies like most favored nation, drug pricing, or importation. How do you think these kinds of executive orders will go forward or not in a Biden administration? What should we be expecting here? Typically, new administrations abandon uh, executive orders and unfinished regulations from previous administrations, not of their party. So I think in any normal world order, President Biden would have a different agenda, different priorities, and would abandon a number of the rules and orders put place by the Trump administration. A number of the executive orders that he did on immigration, health care, um, specifically uh, the most favored nation executive order and the rebate rule executive order. Uh, it, it's my belief that the Biden administration will not move forward with those executive orders and, and revoke them entirely. I do think that a Biden administration is still going to want to act on drug pricing, but in a different way. They're not going to want to adopt what the Trump administration had put forth. So, Patrick, you talked a lot about the state activities at the gubernatorial level and in the state legislatures. How do you see that playing out in terms of the key issues on the healthcare side that we've been working on uh, over the last few years? What changes will this, this have on our ability to do good policy at the state level? Going into this election, we thought that we would have to change our strategy dramatically, uh, given our assumption that Democrats would make significant inroads into the state legislatures. But that hasn't happened. So we're kind of going into 2021 with basically the same power structure that we went into in 2020. So we're going to be facing a lot of issues related to prescription drug pricing. I think one of the things that COVID-19 has brought about, though, is um, uh, a hyper-focused um, examination and look at state budgets. And uh, every time you have le legislators dealing with budget shortfalls because of tax revenues going down, they're looking for savings. Medicaid is one of the largest drivers of a state budget. So legislators and governors are going to be looking for savings in Medicaid. And that means looking at prescription drug spend, especially now that we have new generations of uh, gene editing products that are coming out, which are very, very transformative, uh, uh, potentially curative, but they also come with a higher price tag. So it's incumbent upon us at Bio to really educate these legislators and governors and Medicaid personnel about the downstream savings achieved if you have access to these new therapies. I think another thing that we're going to see is an increase in uh, people questioning the uh, uh, health and safety of vaccines, especially a COVID-19 vaccine, um, given the politicization of the FDA approval process. In the industry, we know that that is a sound process and there are safeguards built into that. And we have every confidence that um, a vaccine that eventually gets FDA approval will be safe and efficacious. However, um, I think the anti-vaccine community has used the politicization of the FDA approval process as a way to cast doubt upon the safety and efficacy of this vaccine. So this is also an area where we're going to be doing a lot of educating with policymakers on the need to impress upon their constituents that the vaccines that they're going to receive are safe, they're effective, uh, they need to be distributed equitably across the state, 
uh, in order to get this pandemic under control. Yeah, I feel like I've been saying to people all this all this last nine months that the real COVID year for us and our industry is actually next year, which is when we actually have the vaccines and the therapeutics out there, then we're going to be having real discussions about what we delivered. Is it reaching people? Is it reaching people fairly? Um, and, and, do, and do they work? Uh, this year has been the year of our industry really working really hard um, and showing how quickly we can work in partnership with others. But now the rubber hits the road starting in January of 2021. <laughs> I talk to friends of mine who are rational, educated people and are generally supportive of vaccines and immunizations. But in this one area of the COVID-19 vaccine, because of all the um, the stories around it are nervous about it. And I feel like, you know, I'm preaching out there that, you know, we need to trust the process because the process, despite what you hear, the process is a good sound process. A lot of national anti-vax movements are using the COVID vaccine and the uncertainty around the safety due in part to uh, making the FDA more political to further their agenda as well and, and put in doubt all vaccines. Absolutely. Yeah. So, Gene, we have a new Supreme Court justice. We have a very important court case coming up around the Affordable Care Act. If indeed the Supreme Court decides that there are parts of ACA that should be thrown out, we are facing an opportunity, but also the challenge of figuring out what to do with the healthcare system with this divided government. How should we be thinking about that issue? I think it's essentially going to be a Tetris puzzle <laughs> that's coming down on us. If they rule that it is unconstitutional, then they could sever parts of it, or they could rule the entire uh, process unconstitutional, the entire law unconstitutional. If that happens, it's not only 20 million people that will lose their insurance, which would be devastating on a normal day, but when you compile all of the economic instability around COVID, the unemployment, the cr economic crisis, everything, as well as pe 20 million people losing insurance in the midst of a pandemic that we expect will still be ongoing. That is utter chaos. Um, additionally, things that folks have not thought of, like the BPCIA law that um, created a pathway for biosimilars, could also be deemed uh, invalid if the entire ACA is struck down and we have biosimilars coming onto the market. So what does that mean for, um, for our healthcare system? Wow, Gene, I didn't even think of the BPS either. <laughs> Yikes. That is a, that's, yeah. It's crazy. Is right. it, it's really crazy. Um, so that's, these are all these things that we have to consider. Go ahead. I mean, this, this, is, this is an interesting, a huge question. Yes. Yeah. So if that happens, and, and hopefully it, it won't, because I really do think that would, that would be, that could potentially be the straw that breaks this country's back, and we are teetering close to the edge already. A lot to, to chew on as we think through what the... Yeah. Yes. And so one of those things, so if, if that happens, then Congress and the administration is going to have to work together to find a solution and put something in place. And drug pricing will most definitely come into play in that conversation as well. Um, I think even if the Supreme Court upholds the ACA, then 
I still think that reforms have to be done to the ACA and to our healthcare system overall. So I think drug pricing is going to have to be addressed at least within the next two to four years. Wow, that's going to be fun. Good times. Yeah, good times. Let's let's pivot to to a question about the scientists that are out there working on all all these great products across the board. What do you think these election results mean for? the scientists, the researchers, and the patients we're all trying to serve in the healthcare industry. You know, we've seen some governors in certain states establishing their own mini FDAs, uh, looking at the safety and efficacy of a COVID-19 vaccine. And we understand that uh, a lot of that is driven politically. So hopefully uh, now that there's a change in administration, those ideas will be abandoned. Uh, but I do think we as an industry and uh, our leaders in the federal government, especially because they have the bully pulpit to really build back trust in science uh, in this country. I think um, uh, it's been a challenge over the past four years uh, in that regard. One of the uh, more controversial, <laughs> and that is a high bar, uh, executive orders that was put into place by the Trump administration was around the ability to um, fire and discipline federal workers. While we joke about bureaucrats and bureaucracy, the role of the federal workers within any administration has always been sacrosanct. And it was viewed by many that this order was put in place um, for the administration to be able to fire workers that disagreed with them politically or were not willing to push through uh, a political agenda. And I think that really started to erode the public trust in what uh, a lot of the agencies were doing and undermined the confidence that is so essential uh, to the fabric of our government. And the agency that was the hardest hit with a lot of these policies was the FDA. Um, And the FDA is the gold standard around the world. And the trust, as Patrick said, it has to be restored. The American public has to trust that when products are approved by the FDA, they are safe and effective for Americans and for the entire world. Uh, These are very sick patients (laughs) um, and they need need to be able to take their medicine and feel good about it. Um, We need to rebuild that. Uh, So I think that is one of the essential things. And I think that that is a huge priority to uh, Vice President Biden. You know, he spearheaded the cancer moonshot a few years ago. His son, Bo, passed away from cancer. You know, he is a huge proponent of science. We may not agree on all issues, but I think we agree and trust in science has to be sacrosanct. Well said. Very well said. Well, let, let's let's end on our favorite topic, COVID. What does the, pre- the president-elect and everybody have to do right in these coming months with regard to COVID? I think the most essential thing that, that uh, an incoming President Biden would have to do is have a plan, be transparent, and be consistent about information. I think that is what America is craving right now. And if he can do that we can get through the rest. You know, states have had to put their vaccine allocation distribution plans to the CDC, but uh, a lot of states had trouble putting those together because unfortunately hasn't been 
clear direction from the White House on how to do that. The new president has to put together a clear, concise national plan that helps these governors distribute and allocate the vaccines as quickly and efficiently as possible so they get to the people who need them the the most and the quickest. I agree with both of those things. I think the other thing I'm learning as we're going into this last stage of getting ready for the vaccines is there's, there's an opportunity here to reach across a bunch of different multicultural populations and and show a unified front on the science of this issue, how it affects everybody. So I think the other thing the president has to do, President-elect Biden has to do, is actually go head on on the fact that we need all the different community leaders to have whatever data they need to support the vaccine. That we just we need to literally overtly fill people's gaps in terms of understanding the process. We we're, we're I feel like the, this administration, those who cared about doing that, have been playing catch up. They're starting to do it, but too late, right? And so we need to have a concerted effort to stop and explain pandemic to the American people, but have a lot of different kinds of people doing it because it cannot be just one kind of person explaining it. That ship has sailed. Um, and and we, we've got to get all the different communities singing from a song sheet. So I definitely agree on the plan, but the execution of that plan has to be done multiculturally, cross age, socioeconomic status. We, we've got to get the, the messengers are missing and they have a lot of catching up to do in a very short period of time. And, and Phyllis, we also have to make sure in addition to getting into the communities and educating them and making sure that they are willing to take the vaccines and the therapies, we also need to make sure they have robust access to the therapies that they need. Absolutely. Because if if cost is a barrier, if policies like step therapy or, you know, fail first, if those are barriers, they are not going to get the treatments that they need. Absolutely. We have to meet people where they are. So, you know, whether it's being able to get a monoclonal antibody in, in the in the community health center that's closest to your house, or it's being able to get the vaccine at your church or at the CVS, all these things that reduce the overall cost for people. So, you know, uh, I don't want to I don't want to outlay any cost. That includes the bus ride, the taking the day off work. All those things need to be as low as possible so people can start the recovery from the economic situation everybody's in right now. I know we're focused on the vaccine and we have to be focused on the vaccine because without the vaccine, we don't we don't beat this thing. But we also have to remind folks that there are therapies out there and access to those therapies. It's just as important to have access to those therapies or treatments as it is to the vaccines. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I, I hope we can think of clever ways to help people get that access both physically and financially. That That's really important. So I think we, we have laid out a good plan for President-elect Biden. This has been a terrific conversation, one of, I think, many we're going to have as we start to see new therapies get approved, the vaccines get approved, as we see the transition in the House and the Senate and, and in the presidency. And then certainly at the state level, there are going to be a lot of different things asked of the states to do um, over a course of the economic recovery and the rollout of the vaccines. Uh, we look forward to having many more conversations with the, our members and certainly among the bio staff 
on these issues. I'm hoping that everyone's staying safe and you're not too exhausted from the election. We look forward to seeing you again on the next I Am Bio podcast.